Hey, uh, welcome to church. Um, that was our softball picnic thing. Um, there's kind of two things that, um, as leadership, that we have to always think about here at the church. One is, is the community. The health of the community, building the community, um, that you're using your gifts, that people are growing, that they're developing. And the second thing that we have to worry about as a church is our sending and our going and making sure that we're outreaching and doing missions and supporting missions and doing these things. These two-handed things have to go on for the church to flourish. And so some of the activities that we do here at the church is about connection and, and building and doing one another and, and breaking bread and eating hot dogs and playing softball and, and um, encouraging one another and walking with one another. And then other things that we're about here is about sending people to do gospel work in our community to support ministries in our neighborhood and support missionaries around the world. And so um, we're going to get into a text today that's going to um, kind of kind of go right at that picture. And so I thought that video was a little bit appropriate. Um, it just kind of landed that way. Can we pray? And then let's kind of get going. All right. You want to bow your hearts, your minds? Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we thank you for sending the great missionary Jesus who came full-bodied into our neighborhood, into our mess, in order to um, call us to repentance, to turn us away from the world and into your kingdom and into your way of life. And so, Father, would you um, use the scripture today with my brothers and sisters and with our friends that have joined us um, to plunge us deeper into your reality, into your kingdom. Make us more serious about missions. God, make us more earnest about the gospel. God, make us um, the people and the disciples you want us to be. And so, Heavenly Father, do all that through your word so that no one gets credit but you. Father, we, um, I'm incapable of rightly preaching your word or teaching it. Um, my friends here with me, they're incapable of hearing it, understanding it, receiving it, apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And so both in the presentation, the utterance, and in the understanding, Holy Spirit, come and do in our hearts what needs to be done. We love you, and it's for Jesus' glory we pray these things. Everybody said, amen. amen. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, open it to Mark chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 7. We've been uh, kind of trekking through the Gospel of Mark. Our habit here at the church is to uh, regularly go verse by verse, book by book, straight through the Bible. We believe everything that God put in His Scriptures is there for a purpose. And so we kind of, uh, we, we walk through Scripture. Um, last week we had... Um, Josh uh, story come from Christian challenge and uh, I just put it out there Josh is a weirdo all right and I love him he was weird I listened to it online I was like that is such a weird human being and uh, but I was thankful for him people looking around if you were here you know what, what you think I'm not judging him you he knows all right and he fits perfectly at Fort Lewis if you've been to Fort Lewis God ordained all right just a weird person up there all right and uh and I just want to say real quick, he says, if I was your pastor, the, these people over here wouldn't come. I love the gates. They're like, nope, no, I'm out, all right? And so um, the thing I love about Josh, though, is that uh, for all that maybe he's not as a preacher or a teacher, he's a doer of the word on that campus. And he is serious about getting the gospel into people's lives. And the thing that he, he kind of talked about that I, I, I sunk my teeth into uh, was that we can't say that the lost are not our problem. Because God has put us here to be witnesses to the lost in our county. So we can't just step back and say, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, that ain't my problem. Our job as salt is to be salty, right? And as light in a dark place is to be light. And so um, continuing that, I thought that is almost like a really good springboard for where um, chapter 6 is going to pick up. A, a couple weeks ago, I, I, we went through what Jesus did in going to his hometown. 
And we said that's kind of curious because there's another account of Jesus going to his hometown and they wanted to kill him there. So this time, in the start of chapter 6, he takes his boys with him and he goes back to his hometown, right? And the argument I made from that text is Jesus wanted his disciples to see him have to navigate rejection. Because every Christian is at one time or the other going to have to deal with rejection. Amen? You're going to have to deal with it. Many of us live our lives in light of rejection. Groups that we weren't allowed to be a part of, jobs that we were let go from, divorces, people that we shared our faith with and they just shot that straight down, family members that there's friction with because we were rejected. Some of us grew up in homes where fathers and mothers rejected us for something else. And so I'm going to say this. It's like we're going to all have to deal with rejection. And so Jesus lets his disciples see him have people absolutely say no to him. They get to watch him deal with rejection before he's going to send them out where they're going to deal with rejection. And here's an argument. Until you understand how accepted you are in Jesus Christ and in the gospel, you will always crumble under the rejection of the world. But my argument is you can be so accepted in Jesus that you can become tone deaf to the rejection that the world is going to offer you. And so Jesus has been um, modeling, if we can use that, for his disciples what their walk is going to look like. So now he's done that. He's going to other villages. Verse 7, we're going to pick up there. And he called the twelve. This is not an accidental number. There are twelve tribes of Israel. In many ways, these apostles are a reformation or a new Israel that are coming. These twelve. And he began to send them out. Now, I want to pause right there. He called the twelve and then he sent them out. If you've been here with us, uh, man, it might be a month ago. We were in chapter 3 some 20 years ago, Okay. And we were in chapter 3, and he said that he called the 12, and he names the disciples, and we kind of went over what their names meant, and that they kind of had these insider names for one another. And he said that he called those that he desired, and, and we said God desires for you to be with him. He called those that he desired that they might be with him in chapter 3, and that he might send them out to preach. That was his intention when he called them. When you got summoned... Right? Your sending was already assumed. He summoned you that he might send you. And that's a weird kind of dynamic spatially. How can we be summoned to be with Jesus and at the same time sent out by Jesus? It's because there's nowhere he's going to send us that he ain't going with us. Or tracking so far. So from the time that they got called into this discipleship relationship with him, he had intentions for their sending in chapter 3. Now the word here for call in Greek is kaleo. And it's curious because the word for church, or the word that we translate into church, which kind of means community really, um, or gathering or the assembly, the word for church is ek kaleo, ekklesia, the called out ones. That calling is central to what it means to be a church. So he calls them into community, and then he says he sends them. And the word for sending You've probably heard before, it's apostolo or apostle. Now, we, we term these as the big A apostles because they were the 12 original apostles with Jesus. But the word for one who is sent is the same word. So he calls them into community together, into church, but he sends them apostolo out. Right? And so these two words are exactly what are at play here. He called the 12 and he began... Um, to send them out. So let, let me say some things here. Church, and let me just put it like this, being in community with other disciples at this church, in this gathering, at our house churches, and, and how you're meeting with one another for coffee, how the, some of the women in this church get together for women's groups or men get together for, for men's activities. Being in community and discipled is incredible 
is incredibly um, necessary for your faith. It's, matter of fact, commanded that we don't forsake the assembling together of saints. Amen? In Colorado, that gets a murmur, all right? It's like, I'm going camping next week. Could you not wait for three weeks to do this sermon, all right? Listen, I, I get all this. Like, we're commanded to be in community together. You will not grow, and your walk will suffer if you're not in church. And I don't mean that as just attending services. Does everybody tracking with me? Okay, you've got to be in church in a way that you're actually in the lives of other believers. That's 100%. This is a place where you are taught and you are, you are the, the, the truth that is, pumps blood into your obedience. It, it encourages you. It challenges you. There's a place that church has in your life. All right? Yes and amen. All right? Everybody cool with that so far? Here's the other thing, though. There is also some things you will not learn until you get out in the neighborhood. It's the flip side of the coin. If you only attend church services and you don't take the gospel into your friend circles, and you don't ever walk by faith, even if it means on top of water, having awkward conversation with neighbors, there's a way in which you're not going to learn those truths in the way Jesus intended it. You must be called into community and learn things as disciples this way, but there's also things that you can only learn as an apostolo, as one being sent into the field. Think about what these two words, they've been called disciples here already. The word disciple means learner. It's that you come into an environment like this, you sit and we hear Jesus' teachings and we learn. There's nothing wrong with that. That's valuable. But there's also apostolo. You are sent out to put those truths into practices until you get calluses serving people that might reject you. Some of us, have said in church so long as disciples, we've learned more truth than we live. Some of us are going out there trying to wing it, living more truth than we understand. And so at any given time, we will, we will go awry because we don't understand biblically what we're supposed to be doing. Are, are you tracking with this? Both of these dynamics should be at work in your faith. Learning as a disciple, going in an apostolo sense. Okay? Receiving and then having outlets in your life to produce. And so Jesus calls them and he sends them in community. Uh, let me give you an example of this. Um, I think that people uh, learn to drive in two different ways. And probably where you grew up d determined this. Um, when I was growing up, I, my, my family made a big deal about driving stick. Anybody else? Like you were not allowed to actually drive until you could drive stick. Little did they know Tesla's going to invent cars we don't even have to drive. What did I spend all that time out there working the gears, right? So there's people that grew up in the country. You, you remember sitting on a parent's lap and you, you did the wheel uh, or you stole it. I don't know how you got the car, all right? And so you, you were driving in the pasture. Anybody learn to drive on a dirt road? Right? Sinners, it's against the law. Didn't mm -hmm. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, so that's how you learned. You were on a farm. You had a tractor. Who knows how you drove? Okay? There's other people and that grew up in urban areas, uh, you know, didn't have access to a car, whatever. Their first experience with learning to drive was reading the rules. Right? Like they, they took the test, and maybe the first time that they ever drove a car was at the test. Right? They borrowed somebody's car. They aced the written side that you didn't study for. All right? But once they got in the car, like it was, it was dangerous. Okay? Because you got to, back in the day, you had to parallel park and your car didn't do it for you. And those backup cameras are, <clears throat> we call it cheating. Right? So there's two types of people that approach this test. You realize that if you pass the written test, you don't automatically get a driver's license. Right? You have to go out in the field and prove that you can put into practice what you have learned. And this is the same exact reality. There's a two-fold process that goes. We learn as disciples, and then we've got to get out in the field like servants. Are, everybody okay with that so far? 
How about this? It's like, how does Jesus teach his disciples? He doesn't just keep them in a sanitized classroom all the time or in a hillside learning underneath his teachings. That's valuable. Listen, you telling me I have an opportunity to sit under Jesus' teachings, I'm in, all right? But he doesn't stop his discipleship there, does he? Okay, pa- parents, do you, can, you just tell your kids what's right and wrong and you expect them to do it? Or do they need to go out there and fail 20 or 30 times and you coach them up? How do you learn? Um, I asked, I, not, not that a stereotype Ronnie, but I did ask Ronnie this. I hadn't seen the movie Hondo, just be confessional, but I knew that John Wayne's name was Hondo. And it has one of my favorite John, I know Dennis Taylor scowled me. He hates uh, uh, John Wayne, just FYI. Um, hey, pray for him. I'm just kidding. Like, you talked. One of my favorite John Wayne clips of all time is in Hondo. Right? The kid is fishing on the side of the, the pond, and he's got his pond out there, and he's fishing with the sun in his back. And so John Wayne's character, Hondo, comes up, and he says, you see your shadow there? He's like, if you can see it, the fish can see it. You always want the sun in your face when you're fishing, so you need to go around to the other side of the, the pond so that your shadow's not in the water. And the fish sees, he says, oh, well, my mom says I can't go to that side of the pond. He's like, well, why not? It's like, I can't swim. He says, you can't what? John Wayne got to be, what, 6'4", right? And Ronnie said, in all abdomen. Just picks this kid up and ragdolls him into the water. And the mom comes running. He's like, he can't swim. He will in a minute, <laughs> right? The kid powers. He's like, just reach out and grab water and pull it to yourself. Kid swims to the other side. The mom says, well, how's he going to get back? Well, he'll swim. It's like, He's like, what happens if he starts to drown? He's like, well, you'll go in and get him. I can't swim either. The woman just runs away. It's like, right? If Jesus wants to teach you certain things, the only way to do that is to throw you in the drink. I, I don't know where we came up with this idea that Jesus will never throw, throw you into stuff that you can't handle. I mean, look at what we do in this passage. All he does is put them in circumstances that are beyond them. He will absolutely put you into circumstances that are beyond you. He will not put you in circumstances that are beyond him. That's the difference. Now look, he says that he uh, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. It's curious. And gave them authority over unclean spirits. Now, in themselves, do they have authority over unclean spirits? Absolutely not. Flip back a couple chapters, you can look at the naked demoniac guy that obviously, in his natural man, does not have authority over the demonic. But he gave them authority over the demonic. He's going to put you in circumstances that are bigger than you, but not bigger than him. Now, here's the curious thing about two by two. Why two by two? If Jesus is wanting to make the most impact... Shouldn't he take the 12 and send them out all like uh, Jack Bauer style solo, right? Wouldn't we get more, 12 cities with 12 people? Why would he send them out two by two? It's because Jesus, I, I promise you, you'll look throughout the whole text, is about this thing called community. Where they can borrow and lend strength to one another. I, I don't know if you figured this out yet, individualistic Western Americans. But this Christianity thing is a team sport. As hard as it is for us to be a church and to love one another, it's a team sport. Our triune God is all about community. And he knows how we are crafted. Look at how this is going to be repeated with uh, Peter and John in the book of Acts. Or Paul and Barnabas. Or Paul and Silas. Or Barnabas and John Mark who wrote this gospel. We could go to the Old Testament and say, what about Moses and Aaron, David and Jonathan? Or, come on married folk, maybe the most critical we could talk about in community is Adam and Eve. And that there is a partnership, there's an ally that you're going to need at different times. Furthermore, Deuteronomy is going to teach us that a thing is confirmed by two or three witnesses. I say this to you as often as I can when I talk about trying to witness to other people or share your faith with other people, don't do it alone. Like, don't do it alone. Like, if you've got a family member that you're trying to witness to, 
sometimes having two or three other people that are witnessing to that same family member helps them triangulate what this Jesus thing is. Some of the friends that you're trying to share with need to have another friend that comes alongside and that shares their testimony, which is different and yet the same. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Like you need to go to the gym and, and, or to your kid's uh, baseball game. It takes four hours to play a little league game. That's called a mission field, right? You could preach the whole gospel of Mark before the seventh inning. All right? You'd be, you're going to be there all day. What, what would have happened to have another mom or another dad who's just trying to witness for Jesus on the side? Don't do it alone. Do you hear me? Jesus sent them out two by two, knowing how we're constructed to be in community, knowing that it's the best for encouragement and for witness and because of things confirmed by two or three witnesses. I mean, I could go even further to say with Jesus in the middle of a couple brothers or a couple sisters or in the middle of a marriage, a three-strand cord is not easily broken. I mean, even in secular knowledge, we understand two is better than one. And so he sends them out Two by two, which is for me a bit hilarious because who got Judas? You know what I'm saying? I already taught you that Simon the Zealot was basically a terrorist carrying a knife. It's like, you know, if we're going to go out there into the danger, give me the brother with the machete, right? And so who do you get paired with when you go out? Like, Jesus going to divvy them up or do you got to choose? And Matthew, the tax collector, gets chose last for the kickball team. I don't know, all right? Uh, He says he sent them out two by two. And that he gave them authority. Now, I don't want to harp on this too much, but this is the mark of good leadership. Good leadership is unafraid to delegate. Jesus is not insecure about his authority and so that he can pass authority to other people. We are still at our church trying to figure this out. What should the elders keep and what should the elders delegate? What should the deacons keep and what should the deacons delegate? When we put team leaders over stuff, what should they keep? I mean, it's a challenge, amen? Like, when you get into business, it's, it's, it's even in secular business, it's hard to figure out the levels of authority and who's in charge and who's the boss and all of these sorts of things. And so a lot of times you make org charts and structure charts because it helps streamline who is the point person for any given thing. I love that Jesus shows off his leadership and his security by delegating authority to people that, quite frankly, we might be slow to delegate to some of these 12 disciples that he delegated to, right? So let's put it to you a different way. A church is not healthy because of how many people it gathers. A church is healthy because of how many people it sends. How many people it empowers. How many people it mobilizes. And if we're constantly, as leadership at the church here, micromanaging people, there's a limitation that we are putting on the ministry. Does that make sense? Matter of fact, even with some of our deacons that are here, our deacons are strong not because they show up and do absolutely everything that's their responsibility. A deacon is strong because of how many people that deacon gets involved to do the ministry. They are mobilizers of other people. They then delegate responsibility and authority to other people. Jesus models this beautifully for us in delegating to others. We're strong and we're healthy for how many, not that we gather, but that we send. Okay? So that's a metric for us. We're going to work towards that as we keep going as a church. All right. Um, Over the unclean spirits. Uh, We've taught about unclean spirits already. You can go back and get those teachings. Um, Verse 8, he charged them to take nothing. I want to pause right there. Um, This is going to be the packing list of Jesus. So he is making, he's charging them with what we would say is a temporary missional activity. Or we could say it like this, maybe compare it to short-term mission trip. This is not the way that it is always going to be. I can can make that really clear. He's going to make a a prohibition about taking a lot of stuff here. Like uh, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Okay, that's a prohibition against things you could pack. He says, take nothing. Take nothing. All the Boy Scouts in here, they just kind of threw up in their mouth a little bit. All right. Take nothing. 
Um, when's the last time you packed for a trip, for like a long trip? Anybody? When's the last time you packed? There's kind of two people that pack. If you have a trip, some people in here, if you have a trip a month from now, you're going home today and starting. Right? You're going to measure out how much shampoo you have in that bottle. You're going to start setting up. You'll stop wearing certain clothes for a period of time just so you can go ahead and put them in the bag you know they're there. Right? Don't point at people. All right? There's other group of people in here that pack. Those people, the night before the flight, bag open, putting it in there. Right? Right? Just loading it up. Do you realize that, and then those two people marry each other, which is awesome. <clears throat> and so, Jesus is like, I don't, I don't want you to take anything on this short-term mission trip that would cause you to depend on it instead of me. This is a boot camp for you learning to be dependent. How many of us in here, if we talked about our Christian faith, and, and one of our strengths, we would say one of my strengths in my walk with Jesus is I'm really good at being dependent on him. Really good. Like my strength is that I'm just like, I'm, I'm, good, at, I'm good at dependence. Doesn't it sound so anti-American? <laughs> right? I'm the diehard Liam Neeson of the kingdom. I don't need a partner. I'm going to pack a lot of things, right? But he's wanting to teach them to lean on him. To not trust stuff or money. I mean, he says, don't, don't pack. Don't pack big. We're going to go minimalist on this thing. Now, I, I want to contrast this. This is not how it's always going to be. This is a temporary charge. This is a short term. The big mission is going to be the great commission that's going to come at the end of Mark. And, and with that commission at the end of his days, he changes. I want to show you this passage because I found this absolutely fascinating. Uh, Luke 22, I think it's up there uh, if they got it. If you got your Bible, look over at Luke 22. I'm going to flip there just in case I can beat him to it. Um, Luke 22, starting in verse 35. There it is. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And, he, and they said, look at this, nothing. Let that hit for a minute. He says, when I sent you out, and a lot of scholars say that he's referencing what we're talking about in Mark right here. When I sent you out, did you lack anything? Nothing. Do you believe that? That if you go out with Jesus in the field, you'll have all that you'll need? Or do you think that you have to have so much money to serve Jesus? The right kind of clothes? The right kind of tools? Or is Jesus enough? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now, which means he's making a differentiation between the short-term work that he trained them to and this. But now let the one who has a money bag take it. Nothing wrong with, you know, having a bank account. And likewise a knapsack. Thank God because there's some Colorado people in here who have 14 backpacks, right? Um, knapsack, let the one who, who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, right? It's the Second Amendment verse in the Bible. Um, For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Um, just in case for some of you, it's like, two, two guns, that's not enough. Apparently, Peter's dual wielding swords. I don't know what's going on here. Okay, But look at this. Notice that the prohibitions that exist in Mark 6 are not to be existent for future mission endeavors and, uh, that's going to go after the Great Commission. It's fascinating to me. Maybe it's not to you. Go back to chapter 6. Let's look at the things that he says not to take in this thing. And maybe some of the things that those deals hint at. Um, the first one, he says, take nothing for their journey except a staff. Now, this is the first problematic one. Because if you read the account, which has more teaching in it, of Matthew and Luke of this, 
he says not to take a staff. And so it says here to take a staff. So what's going on there? Well, one of the things that's happening is, um, in the account of Matthew, it talks about taking no new thing. So what he's basically saying is don't go and buy a bunch of new gear to travel with. Anybody, when they're taking a trip, feel like you're obligated to go to Walmart and see if there's something that you need to buy just for this trip? And he's kind of attacking that in the other Gospels. So it's not saying that you can't take a staff in the others. It's saying that you can't take no new one. Also, theologians will say that the one in Matthew and Luke are referencing something different than the stick here. The staff here is like a pilgrim staff. It's a walker, right? For some of you guys that, that when you hike, you take a stick. The one in Matthew and Luke, this is fascinating, is more of a shepherd's crook. It's a stave. It's like the sword. When someone attacks you, you've got, there's a special staff. It's not like a little twig you walk with. It's like a Donatello bow staff that you've got to work somebody with. You know what I'm saying? It's what the shepherds use to defend themselves and to beat off wolves. So what he's saying is, Toby, don't buy a new Glock 9mm for the Guatemala trip. Boy, I have been waiting all week to do this illustration. No new Glocks. Now take your old one. That's not what I said. All right. Okay. Um, here's the deal. Your security is not in your ninja bow staff. Your security is in me. I'm your protection, not your jujitsu, right? I am your guard. I want you to teach that before you ever own a sword, before you ever look to government or military, I want you to look to me. Don't look to the hills saying, where does my help come from? Your help comes from the Lord. And I'm going to tailor fit this short-term mission trip so that you learn that as you go into dangerous places, I'll take care of you. Now, wild. It says, take no staff or to accept a staff. And the others, it takes no staff, especially no new staff. Here it says, take no bread. Right? What? Don't you know Judas gets hangry on the way? Like, mom's purse ain't going to have any, like, peanut butter crackers in it? No, like, no bread? Like, nothing? No Lambus bread? No bag? Right? Some of us have amazing Osprey backpacks. Apparently made in Cortez. Found that out. Right? You're like, I can't take my amazing backpack into the trail? No knapsack? No nothing? What do you need a bag for? You're not taking anything. Right? No money in their belts. Who would be fine taking none of this other stuff as long as you have money because when you got there, you would just buy it? Jesus is saying, money is not going to save you if this goes bad. I am. Money's not going to save you if this goes bad. I am. You are not going to reach in your bag and find the provisions you need. I am your provision. He sent them to missionary school. No money in their belts. They used to roll like a belt that they would have and they would, they would roll it until it had folds in it and you could hide money and, and different things inside that. He says no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. What if I like Tim McGraw got a barbecue stain on my white t-shirt? What are we going to do then, Jesus? So you're just going to roll with a barbecue stain. Some of us keep extra set of clothes in our car just in case you spill some coffee. Right? So you change your shirt. Right? Some of you just wear coffee and it makes you smell better. It's fine. Um, the two tunics here in particular, though, is a lot more like a poncho. So like when they went to bed at night, you would have your inner garment. And the poncho, they would put over you and you would sleep in. It would be like a blanket that you would sleep. And this is critical because of what follows. You are not even going to provide for your own needs. You're going to have to depend on my sovereignty to bring about people to take care of you. Look at what he says next. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. 
This gets into the principle that ministers are to be taken care of, that you don't muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. Here's the deal. I know people that are all about missions. They love missions. They see it in the scripture. They want to go. But the first time that they have to ask somebody else for help, they're out. Oh, I'll go on missions if I can fund it completely myself. One of the things that we've talked about with our Guatemala team is that we've asked every single person going on that team to have some other Christian send them. That if another Christian won't pray for you, support you financially, and help send you, you shouldn't go. This isn't about money. This isn't about fundraising. This is about people raising. Getting people involved with the mission. I know people that would go on a mission trip, but they would never ask a church, and they would never ask other people for help. And they think in their mind that that's somehow godly. Even though it contradicts the pattern of Scripture that we... Send together, send with the D, but send probably too. Send together and we go together. That there requires a humility in Christians of interdependence on other people. But I promise you, the first time that we start to do that, we're going to feel weird asking people for support or for help, even though we're inviting them to be a part of the blessing that that mission work is going to bring about. We would cheat other people out of a blessing to support us or to send us because of our stinking pride. Amen or oh me. Jesus is going to say, you are not even going to, you are not going to have an electric blanket at the end of the night that you're going to take for yourself. You're going to have to depend on somebody else's blankets. And I love what he, he calls them to do. He says, go house to house, go home to home, go city to city, And if a house receives you, stay there. Don't be somebody that's just like pawn jumping, like going from place to place trying to upgrade your situation. He says, when you go there, body up. Go in full presence. Like, I... This is heavy. We stand at the edge of being capable in 2021 of sending the gospel message to every people group on the earth. That we have the money in churches right now, the technology and the people to take the gospel to every nation. We stand at an exciting time where who knows that we might be the generation that gets to finish the task. At the same time, we have an addiction to comfort and wealth that would make us not go. We, we are so comfortable with sending radio messages, tweeting, sending me- emails, as long as it doesn't cost us blood where we have to walk in someone's house ourselves, share the gospel, our mouth to their ear. I'll tell you, it, I, when I think about my time right here in church history, your time right here in church history, and the idea that we are so, we can access so many places around the world and take the gospel to so many places, it just, it, it's exciting. And at the same time, when I look at the division in our churches, the distraction of Christians, our obsession with politics, that neuters our zeal to go herald the gospel potentially to the last peoples and tongues and tribes and nations, it's frustrating. Let me say this so that we're clear about missions. All the easy places are taken. All the places left that are left on the earth where the church, the gospel needs heralded, disciples need made, and churches need planted All the places left are hard. There's no easy ones left. It's going to take bodies that go, that knock on doors, that move into the neighborhood. Do you understand that when God sent the message of salvation, we didn't download it from the matrix? He didn't fly it in a banner behind a plane. 
He embodied the message of the gospel himself in the person and work of Jesus. The message came wrapped in flesh. It was crucified for our sins. It rose from the grave. God came in the neighborhood. He got close. He got connected. He, you can reach out and connect with Him. Do you know what Emmanuel means outside of Christmas? God with us. Church, here in the county, there's lost people you need to be with in order to embody the gospel and transmit the gospel to them. There are people that are going to have to leave this church and go to an unreached people group and they are going to have to take their family and their life there to embody the gospel among the nations. We are not going to get the job done flinging tweets across the pond. Are, are you with me so far? He says when you get into a house, you're going to be dependent on other people. I know we have some people that lived in other parts of the world. It was crazy to me because when we lived in Europe and did missions, it was, it was difficult because like sometimes you go to... Um, Malnourished countries like Guatemala, it's like the seventh most malnourished country in the world they're going to. And there's things that we can provide ministry-wise to them. But when we moved to Europe into France, the French people, they're fine. Like they got money, they got a house, they got things going on. What do we bring to them? And it was weird because it's like, well, I don't know how to serve them unless I'm giving them something of value. God really got a hold of me and flipped the switch. He says, no, no, no. I want you to go there needing something. Right? So we got involved with some different things inside the community where we were total idiots. Right? Or AKA just Americans living abroad. Right? We didn't know the language. We didn't know anything about rugby. We didn't know things about this, about that. And so we got in their lives and we were just these people. It's like we're, we're serving them every way we know how, but we also made it clear that they could get into our lives by meeting needs that we had of teaching us how to operate and live there. A lot of us feel comfortable from a place of superiority going to people that we can give them things. Few of us, like what they're doing, are comfortable being inferior, saying, hey, I got some needs here in my life, and maybe that's as much a point of connection as me giving something to you as you helping me. Are, are, we, are we with this? I mean, look at the kind of posture that he's teaching them to have as they, as they serve in the kingdom. It is not prideful. It's humble. It's humble. It's dependent. In your weakness, that's when I'm strong. He said, um, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. It's this whole flip. It's like it's, you're receiving hospitality. You know you're getting intimate with people you're sharing with when they invite you over for dinner. We talk about that all the time, about the table is one of the best places to share the gospel. Break bread with people. You know what I'm saying? It's a picture of heaven to come. Verse 11, if any place will not receive you. Okay? So this gets back to the rejection thing. Some people are just going to tell you no. And Christian, if you're going to not be faithful to Jesus because you're afraid of people telling you no, you are not going to be faithful to Jesus. You've got to be prepared for people to say no. They will not receive you and they will not listen to you. Notice they are taking on the Old Testament role of both prophet and priest and that in not receiving them and not listening to them in the message of the gospel, the pure gospel that they're preaching, they are in fact rejecting God himself. They are going as his ambassadors. And they listen to you. When you leave, shake the dust. That is Taylor Swift there. Shake the dust off. Shake off the... See, I, I messed myself up because I should have never thought of that crazy woman. All right. Shake, shake it off. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This is like Exodus 9.9. Well, it's like Exodus entirely because they're dressed in minimalist gear. They should be light and ready to leave at any moment, which is what the Exodus was. Now you get into Exodus 9-9 where the dust becomes a plague and a curse and a judgment against them. Shake the dust off of your feet. 
as a testimony against him. We not only preach grace, we also preach judgment. You can't preach grace unless you rightly preach justice and judgment. And he says, you're going, to take, you're going to shake the dust off your feet. Now, here's the habit that they had and how this is uh, curious. When Jews would travel from Israel and they would go into pagan lands, they'd go over into Mesopotamia, they'd go into Egypt, they would sell their wares, they would trade, they would do different things. As they came back into That's unholy. This is God's people. That's not God's people. Right? I don't want to bring anything unclean into what is sacred and holy. So they would shake the dust off as they would come back in. What's curious about this is Jesus is sending these people not to Gentiles. He's sending them to Jews. He's saying that if a person who is of the bloodline of Abraham hears the gospel message and rejects it, that person is the exact same thing as a Gentile. That person is a heathen. That's a godless person who is, who is not right with me. And you should make that crystal clear. So this practice that you used to do to make a differentiation between Jew and Gentile, between clean and unclean, you're going to make that, that, that dividing line is who receives the message and who rejects it. So shake the dust from your feet as a testimony, as a witness against them. So they went out, that's called obedience, and proclaimed that people should repent, change their thinking, change their way of life. We'll learn also that he preached the kingdom of God. Here's one thing about us, is that, one, our churches are in unhealthy position because we don't send people out. Secondly, we don't even know what to say when we go out. What are we going to say to them, right? Some sort of prosperity gospel? We don't, in our churches, teach repentance. So our people in our churches don't live a life of repentance. It's a habit, right? It's a lifestyle, that repentance. And so when they go out to talk to their neighbors, they don't know that they're supposed to be proclaiming repentance. Do you understand that Put it to you like this. How much do you have to hate your neighbor to see sin cursing them and destroying them and for you to sit on your hands and say absolutely nothing? Do you understand inviting people to turn from the sin that curses them and to return and to repent to God is how Christians love their neighbor? You ain't loving your neighbor if you say nothing about the sin that's destroying their marriage and their family. That's wrecking shop on their soul. Preaching repentance, inviting people to repent, is the way the Christian loves their neighbor. You want to share the love of God and the judgment of God? There's going to have to be some, there's going to have to be some preaching of repentance. And, and there's a point where, if they've heard the message, there's going to be some dusting of the feet. These things come in balance together. I always think of dusting their feet. This is awful, but I, uh, OU's in the softball playoff or whatever, boomer sooner. And um, I used to go to OU Texas, and uh, not me, somebody else. I shouldn't tell this story in the first person. Just realize that. We, <laughs> some friends of mine would go to OU Texas, and we'd have to cross the Texas border, and there's this huge sign that says, don't mess with Texas. It's like a don't litter sign. So we would save all of our trash. My friends would save all their trash for a week and you would mess with Texas right right as a judgment against them and their pride I, I notice here that in all of this stuff proclaim to the people they should repent in all of their proclaiming do you notice it doesn't say anything about who's an introvert or an extrovert doesn't say who's got good speaking skills Anybody knows which of the disciples is the good-looking one? Right? How about ages? You know their ages? Do you know that there is no care? It, we focus so much about our faithfulness, about the external man. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I'm this. I'm that. Instead of just being faithful 
to testify and to witness. Sometimes I wonder that we have our eyes more on ourselves when it comes to witnessing than we have our eyes on Jesus. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, uh, which is an historic Christian practice. This isn't just your essential oils medicinally, right? This isn't like lavender or anything like that. It's olive oil, and they would, they would use oil as a symbol. It was a symbol of the presence of God, particularly the Holy Spirit. So when you're anointed with the Holy Spirit, there was oil for this. So this would be a repeated pattern that when people are sick within the church, they're to call the elders in James 5.14 to come and lay hands on them, pray for them, to anoint them with oil. The oil is like communion. It's not about the oil. Communion, the bread and the cup, is a symbol of the body and blood of Christ. That in taking it, you have a parable acted out. The oil itself is to say to the person that you're praying for, don't look to me for healing, look to the Holy Spirit. So they went out and they anointed people with oil and prayed for them and healed those that were sick. And they cast out many demons. I don't know what else to say about the miraculous powers that come here for them, but here's one thing that I trust and I believe and I know, and I'm sure there's other saints in here that would agree with this. That if miraculous healings and activities are necessary for people to faithfully hear the message you're preaching, God will provide them. If miraculous healings and supernatural activity are necessary for people to hear and receive the message you're preaching, God's got your back. But we can also see in the text we've already walked through in the first five chapters, oftentimes those miraculous activities are more of a distraction to the message than they are a help. Go out in faith knowing that God is going to provide for you everything you need to share with others. And if he needs to, Holy Spirit, drop some sort of heavy stuff in that, do things that only he can do in order to confirm what you're preaching, listen, the Lord got your back. He'll take care of you. One last thing, and maybe uh, uh, we'll be done. I've got, a, I've got a slide up if you want to bring that up. This is the two seas that we've been talking a bit about. The one at the top is the Sea of Galilee. Notice Capernaum is where Peter's from in the north. It has a river called the Jordan River flowing uh, to the south. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on the surface of the earth. No rivers flow out of the Dead Sea. They only flow in, which has created a problem. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. It's all of the, the salt and the, the minerals flow into it, but it, the water just evaporates out in the bottom of the desert. I've actually been there. I've got a picture of myself there. But they, they evaporate out, and all the minerals are left, so it just creates this super uh, salinated uh, water at the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is not like that. It gets water from the surrounding hillside, and it flows out in the Jordan River. That's why the Jordan River Valley, if you'll see the green there, is incredibly fertile. Because it takes those minerals and it, it distributes them, and it allows life to happen. So go to the next one. I'll show you a picture of the Sea of Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you can even notice around here at the edge, there's green things that are alive. Uh, it's, a fresh, it's really not a sea. It's a lake. It's a, it's a um, large... Um, Fresh water. Go to the next one. So this has, it has flow that comes into it and flow that goes out of it. And you see the green that's around there. Uh, go to the next one. Uh, you can see kind of how the river winds and flows out of it. So you have not only things coming in, but you have things going out. And this is uh, important for life. Uh, go to the next slide. So this is different from the Dead Sea. See all that salt? Um, everybody will, it's actually the first body of water that my son Deacon ever swam in, which was a terrible decision. We put him in there, and it's so salt. It was just like sulfur in his eye sockets. He just screamed for like three hours. It's like, my parents dipped me in the lake of fire. Um, we, weren't, we weren't as good a We're pretty much the same parents, all right? Um, but it's so, it has so much salt that you can actually float on it. Like you can get in the water, and you'll float on top of it because the the buoyancy. There's some math in here or science. All right, so go to the next one. All that mineral comes down. Um, kind of a cool picture. It's, it can be so blue. That's actually the sky and the Dead Sea meeting together. Um, 
there. That's a cliff over the, the side of it. You can go to the next, next one. You can kind of see uh, one of the problems is it keeps evaporating. So it's going down and it's getting more and more salinated. I think this is also an acted parable, right? Because I think these two bodies of water describe your faith. I think you're either someone like the Dead Sea that just collects nutrient and mineral, sermon and teaching and blessing and thing after thing after thing, but it kind of terminates on you and it never flows out to anyone else. And because of that, Nothing can grow around you. There's no fruit coming. And you would think that there'd be fruit because you have so much coming into you. So much teaching, so much truth, so much Bible study, so much prayer, so much blah, 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 blah. And and you're a disciple and you're learning, you're taking in. But you're not going anywhere with it. And then there's the other person that's in the room, is in parable. They're like the Sea of Galilee. It's in a rough spot. But water flows into it They received teaching. They received nutrition in the word. They received the nutrients. They received the things that God provides. They received the rains, the blessings that come into their lives. But it doesn't just terminate. It doesn't stay there. It doesn't stagnate. It flows out into the Jordan River, and it makes a valley incredibly fruitful. So I say this. We're looking at this passage about missions. Which are you? Are you the Dead Sea? Or are you the Sea of Galilee? Are you the Dead Sea? Or are you the Sea of Galilee? Let me pray for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed around here, if you just go before the Lord, you know what God has been pouring into your life. And you know, I don't know, how you've damned that up. In the places where you're holding back. Maybe right now, the most loving thing I can do for you is to call you to repent. Reform your thinking back to the word. Turn your heart and mind back to the Father. He loves you. He sent messengers into your life to tell you to turn. Maybe just repent. I don't know what's clogging up the arteries of your heart. Maybe it's a sin thing that I haven't even talked about today. Take a few moments here. Would you just go with before the Lord? Let the conversation take you wherever he leads you. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise because you sent the great missionary Jesus, the one who was sent that he might um, take away the sins of the world. We thank you that he came to us bodily, that in his body he might take our sins upon the cross, nail our guilt and our shame and our failure there, that we might walk in freedom God, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself that, God, that you would make repentance our lifestyle. You'd make it our message of love to those around us. God, that you would call us to yourself in such a way that you could send us out and walk with us. Father, I don't know what's clogging the hearts and the arteries 
of my brothers and sisters, but would you do a sin-cleansing work here? Would you break open new channels of freshness and pour fresh things into our lives? And would you break open new outlets and new relationships so that we might just pour that life into others? Father, forgive me where I've been stingy with your word. God, forgive me where I trust money or myself for my protection and my substance and I and I don't depend on you, God. God, put us in the school of discipleship and teach us. Use whatever means you deem necessary. We love you and we pray all those things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Would you stand and respond in worship?